Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether or not you should dig these out again. So, if you're ready for an 80s music deep dive from Aha to Wham, Bowie to XTC, Madonna, Hair Metal, New Wave, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn your Walkman up to 10, and let's go! Welcome to 80s Music Exposed. I'm Henry. I'm Chris. And I'm Megan. Welcome back. Did you see the full moon on the way in today? No, I haven't seen a full moon. There is a full moon outside. Really? Under the moonlight, the serious moonlight. Oh, stop. 80s Music Exposed. Look, I'm telling you, I did figure out something. So in July, guys, we will be celebrating our four-year anniversary. In July of 2022, not July of 83. You got to always in July, clarify the sorry, year. Sorry, yes. July of 20, uh, 2022, mm-hmm. we'll have done this show for four years. God damn. That's crazy. We, it is our, this is actually what we're recording right now is our 61st episode. I probably mentioned this before, but I find it fascinating that it's going to take us longer than a decade to cover the 80s. Well, see, we for the newbies, we need to cl- tell, tell them what we do. So... For, we do three kinds of episodes, really. We do the normal. We're in on normal mode. We're, we review five albums every month for uh, the entirety of the '80s. That's the main project, right? We talk about them. We learn things about them. We let our listeners know so we should dig them out again. We also do a year show. It's like a year end best of. After we close out, we did it for eighty. We do it for eighty one and eighty two. We close out the year and talk about best of. We all get dressed up, but you guys don't get to see that, right? Right, right. Black tie. Black mm-hmm. tie fair. Black tie. Also, we do... Black tie, black tie white noise. What's... Another, another reference. <laughs> they just keep, just keep bringing them in. Sound and vision. Uh, this is, this that you've got with you, with, a, with you now is one of our classic album episodes. Uh, we've done Madonna. We've done The Police. We've done Michael Jackson. We've done Duran Duran. And this is the one that we're doing for the Thin White Duke, Ziggy Stardust, the late, great David Bowie's album called Let's Dance. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. And Henry, by the way, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in favor of tough love. I think, I think people these days don't need to be coddled. If you don't know what our show is by now, you need to go back to the first. Well, Start at the beginning. It's going to take me more than a decade to do the goddamn show. You need to go back and start at one if you don't know the rules, okay? Right. If you, don't come horning in here because you're a Bowie fan and be like, oh, they're doing a Bowie episode. Let me talk, check the... Oh, no, and they're going to try to fact check us, too. They always do. Actually, thank you. I'm, actually. Actually, I'm, actually, I'm so glad we have new listeners, uh, and I, I will coddle anyone who's willing to listen to this. What does David Bowie do after he goes to the gym? Oh, no. He ch-ch-ch-changes. Oh, no. There are no good David Bowie jokes. I tried. <laughs> Real hard. I'm cutting that out because our audience deserves better. They're going to grow. They deserve better than that. They are grown. Yes, he's dead. Huh? Yeah. Show him some he did. He did. He died in 2016. I mean, we know that 
the world's going to end in nuclear war. The whole problem started the day he died. <laughs> he did. He, he died on January 10th, 2016, the day hell rained down on us. He died, I believe, two days after his birthday. Really? And also three days after his album came out. And Trump was probably elected shortly thereafter, around there, or went, came into office. Oh, he said, I'm not he putting up with that. He's like, fuck this. The minute he was the person holding the whole world together. You know? <laughs> he was. It's funny. I've got a friend who just published or just, yeah, published her first novel, which you can check out. I'm giving her a free plug on Amazon. And in, I believe, I, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it in front of me. I believe the title is, this would not have, this all would not have happened if Prince was still alive. So. Because he died the same year. Yeah. So. so like and 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 we're 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 being funny here, but those were two of my biggest heroes. So it was kind of weird that they both kind of like pieced out on the uh, the whole world going crazy. I do think that Prince was a little bit more shocking than David Bowie, just For because sure. David Bowie was a little bit older and like had been looking kind of for. Yeah, real, you know, for a little while, I mean, it was still upsetting for sure. But Prince was like kind of a total shock for me. Like I didn't know that he was in that bad of shape yeah. in terms of like yeah. addiction and everything. Yeah, the, right, and you know, Bo- Bowie was uh, not natural cause, but Bowie was like sick. So yeah, yeah, it. I, I agree. It was much more shocking for Prince to have died. But it is weird that two of our big heroes went went out around the same time. Let's stop talking about death because this is <laughs> arguably. So we're—I don't know if you mentioned it—we're we're talking about "Let's Dance," yes, which came out in the summer of '83. I didn't—I didn't do any notes on this because I fucking know everything about this record. I think April. in my head, and I love it so much. So I just—it would make sense if April. this was a summer record because it has like that kind of mm-hmm. vibe. I feel, it came, you know it came, what I mean? It came out in April of '83. Okay. April of '83. David Bowie's "Let's Dance." I'm—I'm I'm gonna go ahead and put it in the canon. I mean, I'm just. You I'm, have to for the right. '80s, and probably even for David Bowie. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure there's some hipster Bowie purists out there that consider it commercial schlock or whatever. But mm-hmm. like, it's a great record, and I think it's like perfect for its time. Yeah, and I think I think there's a lot of arguments that can be made, and I guess that's where the conventional the conventional wisdom is: this was the sellout record, the fluffy light record that didn't mean anything after all the cool art records. A huge argument can be made, and I'll be happy to be the one to make it, against that. I think it's one of the, maybe the, I would say it's in my top three uh, David Bowie records. It's amazing because if you if you follow Bowie, he's doing with this album exactly what he did with everything else. He's taking the genre, and he's adding to it and changing it a little bit, and he's, and he's like changing it for how things are going to be in the future. And it's like, to me... The middle 80s, what's coming, mm-hmm. he's predating with this album. I think I would argue he's doing it a lot better because the mid 80s, some of the artists that are doing this style are going to be terrible, right? Well, they're kind of like dollar store versions mm-hmm. of this. Right. So I, I would argue that he took pop and he took, and we'll talk about Stevie Ray Vaughan, he took a blues guitarist, melded it together prefigured what was coming, but also kind of reconfigured what we all thought pop music could be. So it's almost like, to me, it wasn't a sellout. It was, I'm just grabbing another genre like I did with Young Americans and decided I'm going to do R&B. Now I'm going to totally crush commercial pop. 
I yeah. saw it as a larger sort of artistic statement. I think, you know, he was famous for saying things that were pretty on the nose. One of them sounded something like, one of the great things about be one of the most entertaining things about me is that I'm lying to you, or something like that. He had a penchant for doing that stuff. Back in 1983, AIDS was eaten, was eating through the populace and he wanted to to have a pop record here in the states right really bad and had spent in back in 1972 uh he claimed that he was bisexual and everything and by by 83 he had said you know what i was just experimenting you know i'm just an experimental i was experimenting back then Uh, the worst thing for my career ever was to say that i was bisexual and then and and that coincided really well with the release of this album in the U.S. I think he was trying to establish a loggerhead, try to go from the popular person that he was to this megastar, and it worked, so that he could get a cultural foothold for the other things he wanted to do. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. It's totally wrong, but it totally makes sense. Why do you say it's wrong? Well, because if you see what happened to, to him after this record, I would make the argument that this record he didn't make for that reason at all. This record, again, Bowie... I see the only reason. Though. Okay, but Bo, to me, Bowie is like a sage. Like, he predicts what's coming, right? Mm-hmm. And his Berlin trilogy pretty much predicted the art rock that was coming for punk. Then Scary Monsters is... Um, it's New Wave. It, it basically says this is what New Wave is going to be. If you look at everything about this, even what you just said, mm-hmm. Bowie's predating the 80s, the me-80s, right? He's basically saying... I'm going to become regular now. Look at it. He basically predates right, Peter yeah. Gabriel becoming regular. Like Peter yeah, Gabriel is the craziest his... fucker. And he's like, I want to have a pop that he's basically telling you what's going to happen in the eighties. It's a character. Everything yes. he's done well, his whole saying. life is a character. That's what I'm saying. But it's not that he his wanted to be, that way. it's not that he wanted to be, uh, this pop icon. I think he was, I think he was doing it like an art project, like anything else. He's an actor. Yeah, like the character David Bowie is now going to be a, a superstar pop star in the United States. I, yeah, I think the argument can be I made, and we'll we'll get there with the next record. I think the argument can be made that that's the first time he actually bought into it is on the next record where he's like, oh my God, I am a big, huge pop star. I better repeat this record again I think and make I'm more saying, hits. I think we're saying the same thing. And tonight thing. is a total... That that it's a lar- it's a much larger thing. Like this is the character of David Bowie. This is the most heterosexual record he made. Yeah, but that's well, what's, that's what's coming. The Reagan eighties yeah. are coming. That's yeah. what's hip, right? Everybody like like uh, what's her name? What's right. the? It wasn't cool to be gay. So now I'm gonna have to do this other thing. I always think about the girl that was the American Idol judge, Paul Abdul. Yeah, that that late eighties video she had where she was celebrating credit cards and spending money yeah. and like, um. That to me is the 80s, right? It's like the excess 80s. Everything was gold in that video, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, And even Madonna, Material Girl, like everything's coming that way. And Bowie, well, I feel like, is doing it first. With Material Girl, allegedly, Madonna said that that's like a satirical song or whatever. But like, obviously, the with the decade and like time or whatever that it came out in, it's like not really viewed that way. <laughs> but with David Bowie, do you ever wonder like what this character's name would have been because like you have like Mm -hmm. Z Stardust the thin white yes yeah and it's like what is this like Chad David Bowie (laughs) that's great yeah that's great I don't know I mean that's what I'd call him it's Chad Bowman 
but even went so far as to choose like Nile Rodgers, who who he thought that he was going to be working on Scary Monsters too, and uh, was like, "Well, this is the way that I'm going to get cred with a white audience." But no, David Bowie says, "Here, here's the songs, Nile Rodgers. Be Nile Rodgers on them." And, and, it's, let's, and let's, it's all over the album. And let's give Bowie credit here again, because basically now right is about to become super popular with white people because he's going to write and record two Cyndi Lauper records. He's yeah. going to do the Power Station records. He's going to do um, Madonna. Madonna's record. Like He's going to basically engineer all of the white people music for the next four years. That's cool. So I mean, even just like somewhat recently, like when did that... Daft, Daft Punk, Punk song about like that wasn't that long ago. No, I heard that beat that the, the same basically the same bass lick on this record is on some other Daft Punk song. I googled Daft Punk. Yeah. I was like, did they do that? Bass yeah, I, you can make the argument. You can hear Daft Punk in this sure. in this album. I think that's part of the problem this album has like regular people think it's not cool i think it's amazingly cool and if you dig past the first three big hits which are great i'm not like i mean but you can hear those anytime you kind of go into it don't you i mean you guys tell me if i'm wrong you kind of go into it going well it's gonna suck now because it's just filler and you get there and you're like these are fucking amazing pop songs i never really felt that way because i knew it was by the time I listened to this record, I already knew that David Bowie was like considered, you know, like a really an artist. So I always had pretty high expectations. And this record, I would say that whatever like pretentious hipster people want to say, it's harder to make a commercial like success. Like for a record, that's harder to do than to do an artsy fartsy bullshit thing mm. that only like a small niche but I will, will be it. That wasn't all on his back. He had help. He had Nile Rodgers. He was a, oh, yeah. a secret, you know. Well, this and ain't Stevie Ray first rodeo. You know? But, it, but like, it also points to, the, like, the brilliance of Bowie for picking people. Because I, I went into doing this uh, deep dive assuming that Nile Rodgers had pretty much wrote most of the tunes and Bowie sang. That's no, not the case at all. True. Bowie pretty much knew how to write hits because he wrote six of the eight songs. And then now Rogers helped him turn it into a groove album. I like, I think it was interesting too, that he basically told now Rogers, he wanted a groove record. And now Rogers was like, I thought we were going to do, <laughs> we were going to do scary monsters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's also interesting that like, I don't know if you guys knew this, but like, I knew after this record, because I was a Stevie Ray Vaughan fan, Nile Rodgers and Stevie Ray Vaughan were like best buddies. And I didn't know it was because of this. But Nile Rodgers did not want Stevie Ray Vaughan on the record. I read that. And yeah. then when they came out of the sessions, they were like blood brothers. Like he loved him after mm-hmm. the sessions. But I cannot, I cannot overstate 
how odd that choice is and how brilliant it was because Stevie Ray Vaughan on this record, you're just waiting for him to come in and it's almost like he's, it's refreshing for him not to be playing the blues. He's, he's got so much energy and life in his guitar because he's like, I don't ever play over weird pop songs. Mm-hmm. Let me just crush this. And um, But that was legit the first look that anybody, that the public had had of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Like, I read that uh, Eric Clapton heard the solo and had to pull over and say, who the hell is that? The solos are just like coming off the out of the speakers, like literally like and jumping I, at stupidly you. because the way that we... The way that we'd reviewed records this uh, this year, we have already looked at Texas Flood before we looked here at Let's Dance, and for some reason, I thought Texas Flood came out before. But the truth is, is that there was a whole whole bunch of conflict about this afterwards, you know, because he wanted Stevie Ray Vaughan to go on tour, and there was this dispute about whether Double Trouble was going to open up for David Bowie or if Stevie Ray Vaughan was going to play in the band, and. Um, and he was mad because apparently Double Trouble had been kicked off the opener slot, so he just said, screw it, I've got Texas Flood coming out, I need to give my energies to that. You know, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, he pulled out completely um, over that. And there was just a bunch of, uh, he just said it was bullshit and didn't want to deal with it afterwards. He got somebody else to play his parts. He's also pissed about that video, you know, the one for... Um, for Let's Dance, where David Bowie was was not playing the guitar. yeah playing the guitar with white gloves, yeah. he says that motherfucker shouldn't be on there trying to act like he's playing the song. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, there, there's a million different versions of that story, but the yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan biographer said that it really and then people that know Bowie like so Bowie always has some sort of great guitar gunslinger with him of a different genre, and, and on Scary Monsters it was. Uh, Robert Fripp, who, if go back and listen to that, I mean, that is just the most amazing angular new wave guitar mm-hmm. ever. And then, on, and, and then on every album up until this, he's got Carlos Alomar, who's just like, since Young Americans, is basically like the rhythm guitar player, not the lead guy. And then he brings in these gunslinger leads, and Carlos Alomar is amazing. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't bring Carlos Alomar for this one. Niall Rogers plays all the rhythm guitar, and he's the fucking guitar player for Chic. He's fucking amazing. And so Stevie Ray Vaughan is basically like, I don't want to go on tour with you because you're not going to bring double trouble. And I have a record coming out. Yeah. And Bowie was so like, dude, do you know what? Like, I I bring Adrian Ballou. I bring Robert (laughs) Fripp. I bring the great guitar players. You're not going to go? Like, do you know what you're turning down? And then he said, well, then you're not going to be in the video. He reshot the video with the white glove. So it wasn't that Stevie Ray Vaughan said, I'm not going to do it. No, he was going to do the video. He was. he was kosher with that. He just was like, I'm not doing the tour. And Bowie's like, nah, you're not doing the tour. Then um, you're not, not going to be in the video. Right. That, that well, that's really one version. I mean, that's another, that's a version. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan can't get his version now. <laughs> no. Unfortunately. Sure. And that's what's kind of sad. Well, David Bowie can't either. When I watched him tell that story to this, <laughs> it was either an Australian or a New Zealand journalist. He was um, he was high as a kite, you could tell. So it's hard to know. Like Maybe he was just having sour grapes at that moment, too. Hard to know. One thing about Nile Rodgers, though, if you notice, um, he's the one that does the hook on the songs like you know the record opens up with modern love with that little chucka chucka thing 
whole thing is he sets the song up with a hook at the beginning, like Notorious. No, no, Notorious. He did that. He did one, two, three, freak out. That is a hook. Like that is meant to grab you from the beginning. So I'll go ahead and do it now. So to me, the quintessential track on this is Criminal World, which is a cover mm-hmm. that he and Nile Rodgers both picked. And the juxtaposition between Nile Rodgers' guitar and Stevie Ray Vaughan's guitar on this is, like, to me, one of the most exciting and amazing, like, 30 seconds in music. You've got, like, this veteran guy who's just playing the smoothest, coolest shit, right? Uh-huh. And you can just, it's like before Steve Ray Vaughan even starts, it's like you can feel him coming. And it's like this little, it's like this 18-year-old kid just like revving up. just like, let me fucking in. Let me fucking in the game, coach. Let me fucking. <laughs> and he just comes blazing in. And you'd, I, you hear so much vitality in life in that solo because he's just like, I, I feel like playing with Nile Rodgers was just like, oh my God, he never, you know, because Stevie Ray up to that point and, and every, for a long time after, he was the only guitar player. With the, like, there was a bass player and a drummer and a keyboard player sometimes, and he was the guitar. There was no rhythm guitar, you know? And you can hear it in that song. He's like, holy shit, like, this is so much fun. It's a I mean that arpeggio thing that Nile Rodgers is doing underneath him. It just you can hear it just lift Stevie Ray Vaughan and be like, "Holy shit! I don't have to carry the whole thing." And then he's just like blazing right over time. Right, um, it's he, amazing. Like, he, and I'm not like a big guitar solo guy. Like, I don't get like all worked up over guitar solos. <laughs> he said he he said he Albert Kinged all over this bitch. What yeah, he, he just fucking just blew on all crazy. He's just crazy. It's great. But like, who would know except for David Bowie that it would work? Because it doesn't seem like, on paper, it doesn't seem like it would make sense. So, so we've talked about Let's Dance a little bit. 
we're kind of jumping around, I guess. China Girls on this record, right? What did you guys think when you in that opening bit uh, with uh, China Girl, that hook that Nile Rodgers wrote for that? Uh, it's considered sort of a parody of, I guess, Chinese pentatonic music, right? Um, it played well in 83. When you hear it today, do you have a different kind of perception of it? Do you think it's like appropriated weird or it's saying something else? I know when I watched the video for China Girl, I didn't, when I was younger, I didn't put together what was really going on in that video. You know? There's a part of the video where David Bowie is like doing the eye thing. Yeah. Yeah. You saw that? <laughs> yeah. Which, I was like, okay. You know, there are just some fucking things. It's almost been 40 goddamn years ago. You got to chalk it up to like, it ain't cool now. And it's like kind of well, cringy. But at the time, I mean, like, it just was that was acceptable at the time. And that was like a part of pop culture at w- the time. I would say he was playing the character of the misogynistic womanizer guy. And kind of making himself look bad by doing that in this sort of weird way, like in this. Well, I don't even know. If that's I don't think what it, the song is about. I don't even know really fully what the song is about. Like, I'm assuming it's a romance of some kind, obviously. But like, who the fuck knows? Iggy, like, Iggy Pop wrote it, right? So I think so. I think he cut. Well, didn't he, he did. actually do it originally? Like on his album, The Idiot was yeah. it on that album? Yeah, I don't he, remember. He but. said that it was about. Uh, um, uh, Asian, uh, a Vietnamese woman named mm-hmm. Kailan Nguyen was her name, and uh, so not and it was about her Chinese. But but <laughs> but even Nile Rogers didn't know that it was about a, a girl specifically. He assumed it was about drugs, and so wrote it. That's kind of what I always wondered a little yeah. bit, but I wasn't sure. So I I after looking into it after Henry brought it up, I do think the so. The hook, the little that that in today's day and age is yeah, they, like would it wouldn't work. Today, that wouldn't right? work. But Bowie did comment on this like right after, and he said these video things are like little movies that we can make social commentary. Mm-hmm. And he said the message is very simple: it's wrong to be a racist. Mm-hmm. And I think his life, um, the relationships he's had, both personal and professional, I, I see it as more of a nuanced like. I'm playing a character in this video who appears racist because it, he looks like an asshole racist, and that's the point. Racism is wrong. Yeah.
I don't think now you can do um, songs that go ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, and say that's about China. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's right. I guess the other one that came to mind from the time period is like, I think I'm turning Japanese. Yeah, that one. Yeah, is that the vapors? That is not about no, but no, it's it's, it's the lick. It's the it's not the song, not the lyric. But yeah. I'm just saying the lick is sound is like that kind of like oh, this is what Japanese people sound like. Mm. Their music sounds like. All of this kind of plays into what I was trying to say earlier, which is I think he had a much bigger master plan. Like, I think that if you look at the lyrics to Modern Love, the track that opens it up, like the whole thing is about what was the newspaper doesn't say anything real, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and so he's trying to say, I'm not real. I'm not a real guy. I'm I'm just a character. I'm playing. He's like Stephen Colbert playing Stephen Colbert you know, on a on a TV show. He's playing a different person. Yeah, and he would he would we go on the, to say much later in life. Yeah, that no one ever has really known who yeah, I am. Yeah, this has nothing I, to do with who I am. I didn't even know he said that, but I could totally see that quote coming in his mouth that nobody really knows who he is. Yeah, and also I I would like to say that I think that song is the worst song on the record. Which one, Modern Love? Yeah, I like that. To me, it's like two fifties. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the worst song on the like album. The best songs. I do on the too. Album, honestly, I, no, I like think it's. But I like it better than "Let's Dance" just because I've heard "Let's Dance" so mm-hmm. many goddamn times in my life. Like it was one of the songs they'd play on loop at like Six Flags or like Cedar Point along with What's Love Got to Do With It by Tina Turner, all day, like I those mean, songs. Man, like, so like, I like Let's Dance, the song. To me, but. Ricochet <laughs> is like the perfect new wave meets groove song possible. It's so funky, but it's so new wave at the same time. It's like Scary Monsters meets a young America.
yeah, without you. That sounds like one that came from the Young American Sessions that never made it. He he does his voice again deep like he did yeah. on that, and it is updated and just insanely good. It's there's hardly any lyrics on it. Like it to me. Uh, I mean, what is this? It's almost like he's trying to be Avalon. It, it's like a song. It's like a song that's like uh, Roxy Music or Avalon. Without you, to me, yeah, yeah. Well, Nicholas Pegg, who's like the like the recognized official biographer of Bowie, yeah. he always hated that one. not my least favorite my least no, favorite like is the last song on the album i wondered about that because i really like shake it and i what was wondering hell? if you guys have... like liked it or not no i, I think it's like filler like as hell it I... is not it, it that is shocking to me it's not filler at all Speak to every, I don't think this album first really has it. I don't either. <laughs> and I also like is, how lean and mean it is. It's you have to admit, long. it is completely front-loaded. No doubt about that. I disagree. Right? That's just oh, because... Oh, come on. No, I disagree, because that's just what made the it on the radio. The last song on, the, on side A is... Um, God, what is it? It's Without You. Yeah, that one. But then it's Ricochet, Kremlin. Then it's like the art guy shows up. Hey, I'm still here. You know, I totally yeah. disagree. Cat people, cat people had already been a hit before the album. It's a totally the different song. 
Yeah, but I mean, like, I mean, it's, it's totally, not like it's a, performed completely different. Yeah, but it's not a throwaway song. Like you're, I'm not like, saying that. You're I'm saying the like last a, song on the record. It's front loaded. No, it's front loaded because That's what you, it hits. you think that's front loaded because those were the hits, not hits, because hits, hits, hits. Yeah, but, well, I mean, I can't help but they were popular, but that doesn't make them better songs. Well, that was say, the plan, that's what I, I mean. Think. I think the plan was like, Let's put I the mean, hits that's on always the front. The, I feel like with but a it, lot of records, is on the first side, you put not with all sure. records, of course, but but if he'd have put records, if he'd have put Ricochet in the two hole. You'd all be talking about how great Ricochet is. It it didn't. It's not the songs. It's the fact that the. And this is the problem I have about this record. Everyone just remembers those three songs, and they either go, "I really like it," but it's only got three hits on, or they go, "Yeah, that's his shitty sellout record where he had like the hits and wore a pompadour and went on tour." Well, they don't even know. A lot of times when people say that, they haven't even listened to like the full album. That's true. I agree. I agree because that's just what they're assuming you know Mm -hmm. like i mean and most i have met some bowie fans before that like this isn't their favorite record or in their top three but they won't say that it's a bad record most of the time yeah sure and i I, you're right i agree there's a lot of people and i'm i'm fine with that a lot of bowie fans and i would say there might be three more better bowie records but this album is fantastic again it's just Mm -hmm. It's like he's using a genre that is not cool for Bowie fans because he's an art rocker. So it's like, oh, he's treading in. Oh, it's not low. Treading in commercial. Yeah, he's not low. So I can't like it, even though I secretly listen to it all the time. But at the same time, they don't want to acknowledge. Well, this guy brought a Stevie Ray Vaughan on this thing. He also, in previous incarnations, probably is responsible for people knowing who Lou Reed is. Uh, responsible for people knowing who Iggy Pop is, right? That guy was a tastemaker. What is the word when you're a tastemaker or a curator? He was a curator as much as he was a musician. And that's definitely that is on display here a lot. Totally. He had like a finger on the pulse. Yeah. Like a head. And always did. Like a head of the pulse too. Yeah. Like he was ahead of everybody. What's coming next. And like this, this record made it to number four. In the U.S., weirdly enough, it didn't make it to number one. Guess what did? His last one. His last one made it to number one on the Billboard Top 200. And this one didn't. Nope. Yeah, but come on, Black Star's That's a great cool. record, but we know why it made it to number one yeah, we because know he, he died three days after. Yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. I mean, come on. Um, I'm just surprised that this wasn't a number one record. For some reason, I thought it was, and that it was like a huge smash, which it was. But I just assumed that it went to number one. Yeah, I would. I would too. And it's like it's. I guess more of the time, it's different to think with the longevity that records had back then. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. now, now if your song if your song doesn't rocket to number one, it's got such a limited lifespan. But mm-hmm. like, let's dance. Like owned. Well, along with two or three other records, the whole of 1983. Like, you didn't stop hearing it because yeah. 1983 ended. You know what I mean? Like, it just kept on rolling. So, yeah, it's like, it, it is weird, though, that you would just assume that it made it to number one, especially with three hits. But then the, the, we covered a Billy Joel record last week that I was shocked to find had six top 20 hits on it. Six. Mm-hmm. Six of them, yeah. So I bet like the fame soundtrack or something stupid like that, like prevented this from going to number one. You know what I mean? Like something that nobody gives a shit about anymore or a thriller. Yeah. Or, or thriller. (laughs) Let's get back to shake it and tell me why 
that one's so I don't get it. Like the synth is really kind of twerpy, you know. That's the eighties though. He's like pre. He's yeah, like telling like, you what that what's gonna sound like. I don't mind a twerpy synth. I don't either. At that drumming and the bass is basically the power station drummer. That's Tony Thompson. It sounds like um, the power station. I'm just it's in being it. recorded at the power station. It sounds like Cindy Lauper too. This must be the part of the eighties I don't like. And listen to that guitar line. Wow, how, I'm not, can, I'm how not can you not like that? I, I think I like the song before it so much more. That so, did you listen to the other version of Cat People? Yes, on this one, it was so slow and plodding. Can't you see why you made re, want to remake it? It's been so long. Feel my blood enraged. It's just the fear of losing you. Don't you know my name? You've been so long, and I've been putting up fire. For the movie, though, I think yeah, I I didn't want. I don't remember the movie. God, did you live in the eighties? By the way, I just don't remember. Nastasha Kinski, Cat People. I mean, I just don't remember it. Were you fucking alive in eighty three? Yeah, I was alive in eighty (laughs) three. I didn't. I mean, I was eleven years old. I saw it. It sounds like a rated R movie, Chris. It was. It was like I wasn't allowed to watch rated R movies. With a very very hot. Young no, note to self: Watch Natasha Kinski and Cat No wonder, no wonder you don't know about Shake It. You're you're culturally behind the time. You oh need to God. catch up. This Shake It was the song where like David Bowie's in the lounge and said, "You know what? Just do what you want." No, I, dis- I disagree. And but I'll- even if he did, this song is telling you about 
True Colors that's coming is telling you about the Power Station record that's coming, is telling you about Robert Palmer that's coming. And if you don't like those records, then you probably don't like Shake It, but Shake It basically predating those songs, which is fucking amazing. Not my thing. But, you know, I can't wait to get to those records and you say those. that's not your thing. They're all based that that Nile Rogers is basically showing you where he's going, what he's going to do. Right. I don't like the twerpy scent on that thing. Mm. I don't think I've ever listened to a Power Station record. Mm. Get ready, you're going to have to do it. I know. Well, I mean, I think. I mean, and tell me how it's great really it is weird to me because that you guys are like so great. you guys are talking about like. <laughs> Top 10 records of the 80s that you guys haven't even listened to or don't like. That's weird. What are you doing? I'm aware of it. I'm aware of the power station. I pretty much know like who they are. And they did, uh, did they, did they do a cover of, uh, bang it, bang and gong or whatever? They sure (laughs) did. They sure did. (laughs) Yeah. Another Bowie contemporary T-Rex. Yes. yes. Anyway, this record did exactly for Bowie what he wanted it to do. Apparently, oh, totally. it did not do for Henry what he wanted it to do. Stop though. being so offended that I don't like that song. Jesus. Twerpy. So I feel like Henry, likes, Henry likes this album. Ridiculous. Yeah, of course I do. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to say it's not, you know, the Ten Commandments. Twerpy. It's eight. It's an eight commandment. It's, it's only eight songs, too. Isn't that kind of weird? I like, think it's great. Only like eight and not 12. I think it's great. It's just like the 80s. It's going to be disposable. It's going to be quick. It's right. going to be... David Bowie. He's like Nike or Apple or anything like that now. And that was the point. And this will be my criticism of the album. The one thing, I've, I've never been in love with all of his album covers. Like the album cover to this one is kind of... I like it. Ugh. I think it's cool. I didn't get it. Like, I don't hate it, but I'm like, I don't really understand. What's, he's boxing, right? Yeah, but like, what? He's like, a little what? man. I'm macho. But I'm he's not got wearing the a little, dress, man. I'm gonna fight you and shit. It's got the little that's thing the, on it, like the dance steps. Like you used to buy a mat to teach you how to yeah. do dancing, and like I don't that's like the, that at all. That's that fifties and that font is thing. fucking. That font sucks. That's the worst. There's only one I, record worse. I love it. Could have been better. The hours record from the. I don't 90, hate it, ugh. but it could have been better. Yeah, I agree. It could have been. It could have been better. Well, like. Look at his previous record. Like I that know. fucking thing is like so cool and weird. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but again, the, the goal artsy. the goal was not to appear to you art house folk. <laughs> it was to try to do a pop record that would fucking sell records. Yeah, I just don't like the cover. And so the, I'm gonna to look like to the Midwestern I'm gonna look, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> also also I'm gonna say this. This is one other thing I've never been a big fan of with Bowie. He's he's fallen into that trap that like 60s and 70s artists fall into like he has to be on every record cover mm. like every cover's got to have yep. bowie on it and it's like why motherfucker why that it's just something they morrissey did it well exactly well a few times he didn't do it <laughs> when he did cool smith's covers Grammar. he wasn't on there but yeah. <laughs> so i mean we're all throwing down on a positive on this one so you know we probably wouldn't even called it a classic album and even reviewed it if we all didn't have thumbs up on it. Well, that's why I, I, when we do some of these, I have to find a negative, and that's why I kind of bash the record cover because that's the only negative I can find about Let's Dance. It's a little cheesy. That it could have been better. Like that last song. Phew. 
She was talking about the record cover. She wasn't talking about the record. <laughs> oh, I thought she meant the record. Henry you just G- wanted to slip that one in. <laughs> Henry, you need to fucking expound on why you think the record's a little cheesy. Not the record. I'm talking about the last song. Oh, shake it. Just shake it. Just shake it. God, can you imagine if it was only a seven song album? No, you need that. You need number eight. Oh, you definitely need eight, but Henry would have cut eight. Well, it expanded. Let's Dance clocked in at like 10 minutes long on that. This is true. (laughs) That is true. It's like seven. I'm looking at it. It's like seven minutes and 37 seconds long. And it's got that extended, that extended beat. You know, you can tell when it's like, this isn't the single cut. This is the single. I was going to ask you guys about that though. How, what, what was your thoughts on that? Cause we have was, folks out there that maybe are going to go back and listen to this. You're so used to the single versions of these songs that you're like, that solo's in the wrong fucking place. Like you're going through, you're going through let's dance and you're jamming in the car. And you're like, that's not where the solo go. I, I was, I liked it more. It was like more was better. There's more saxophone, which I thought you'd hate. No, but he did it right. There's a difference. He didn't do all the bleed eat shit. You know what I'm talking about? It was good eating sax. That bleed eat crap that they do for Genesis and bands like that. Fuck that. I want it. He need to. He he places it in the song in the correct way. In a tasteful way. It's done right. It's not brash and sticking it up your ass (laughs) like these other guys do. You don't like. You don't like horn sections that do the like the Tower of Power horns that go like God. You ever listen to Chicago? God, I'd rather have a barium enema than listen to Chicago. You know, (laughs) this is really broke down into a weird discussion. (laughs) So, you know, I want to mention our our new website. 80smusicexposed.com. If anybody's left listening yeah. and wants to go see a website, <laughs> more of we this. Cut out the territory. My next blog post is going to be Chicago and why they sucked in the <laughs> 80s. If you like the records we're choosing, please consider subscribing to the pod. You'll have our newest content downloaded to your device. Review us, please, on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, or other platforms like Stitcher, Spotify that you might be using. You can chat us up, ask us questions on Twitter at 80s Exposed, or email us at 80s Music Exposed, gmail.com, or go to our website, like I said, 80s Music Exposed.com. You can hit us up on social media, leave us a voicemail on SpeakPipe. My Twitter handle is at Hank G. Chris, what's yours? Mine is at TCI Duke, but I also have a website, or not a website, an email address associated with the uh, podcast, don't I, Henry? No, you don't right now. I thought you were getting that set up. I was. There's a problem, dude. I'll explain <laughs> it off mic. <laughs> We've got I, time. We've got time. Phil, I what's actually, going on I with actually, email? I actually tried to set Megan up with it first, and it totally blew It blew up on me. Did you catch that, Megan? It's like bullshit. No, I, I didn't. Yeah, so if you want to yell at me about how much this episode sucks, I'm at TCI Duke on Twitter. Don't have an email address for the podcast yet. We'll get you one. <laughs> we'll get you one. And, um, I'm at Bastards of Young 92 on Instagram, and I also do not have an email address, God, apparently. Pressure is on. I want to thank everyone for listening to our show. You can uh, help us keep the lights on by joining our Patreon. Maybe we will be able to hire somebody that can help us get an email address set up. That, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> an actual 80s music exposed email address. You know what David Bowie once said? 
gentleness clears the soul, love cleans the mind, and makes it free. Megan, Chris. I stopped listening. Jesus, I thought he was going to do a knock-knock joke for a second. <laughs> I made you a mixtape. 